Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hi everybody, this is Vesna Luca and you're listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast for people shaping the future of business. On the show today, Nicole Bradford, a pioneer, innovator, investor and thought leader at the intersection of technology and human transformation. And today we'll discuss about the future of human intelligence and human transformation. So welcome to my podcast, Nicole. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being on. And I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed, actually, thanks to our joint friend, uh, Adam Gazeli. Yeah, I love Adam and what he's doing. Yeah, no, he's a wonderful person. But Nicole, you, you have several instruments in your hands to serve. Uh, you're an investor via your seed stage venture fund and Nirmea Collective. Uh, you're also building community as co-founder of Transformative Tech Org, uh, which is a global ecosystem dedicated to educating, gathering and activating this well-being tech founders and investors and innovators. And you're also shaping global thinking as a speaker and futurist strategist and also an author. So there's a lot of instruments in your in your hands, but I'd like to ask you first around human transformation, because it seems like in this moment where where we need to be a very creative and collaborative and inspired, all of us we we tend to live in a in a world uh, where there is a widespread stress, anxiety, and depression, and loneliness, and lack of engagement, and the sense of like lacking some kind of purpose altogether for humanity. There is also this extraordinary renaissance of, of human possibility and abundance with digital transformation of everything actually that is happening around us. But can we tap into the digital transformation fully without going through the human transformation? I think digital transformation and human transformation are interconnected. One of the reasons why you're seeing so much global unhappiness and disconnectedness is because our technology is on exponential curves. But the way that we learn how to become healthy, happy humans is linear and analog. And simultaneously, we've had lots of shifts in our society. So for example, the percentage of Americans who are spiritual but not religious is almost 40%. And so there's the old institutions that used to tell us how to be, uh, whether they're the way that we used to think about nation states, the way we used to think about religious institutions, the way we used to think about academic institutions, everything is in flux right now. And so as a result, the old things that used to tell us how to be and some of those ways that we used to be, I think it's good for them to move into the past. But there used to be sort of a framework of this is how to be. And we don't really have those anymore or they're softening in different belief systems. And so where we're at is that the tech is actually forcing us to learn how to become deeply human and connected. And I actually feel that we're really equipped for that. All of our biology is around connecting to one another. There's a big chunk of the way that we experience one another that I think comes from the Serengeti in the sense of like you really had to know who you could trust and who were your allies and who you could mate with and how do you get food. And so we have a great deal of biology that's focused on getting a sense of one another. And so I actually see this time period as the missing piece is getting human transformation on the same type of scalability 
as our technology is. And I think we're really well equipped for it. I think the unhappiness you see is the gap between those two. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why I've been investing in the type of technology that I do invest in is that I think that's part of the solution. And by doing that, I think we can usher in a new era of human flourishing. And I'm excited about that. So, Nicole, let's talk a little bit more about the, the future of human intelligence. The future of human intelligence is really about, I call it becoming generative, embodied, emotional, and sensory. And really what that is, is like right now, everyone's chattering about generative AI. And that's just the most recent addition of our being so charmed by our tools that we neglect ourselves. We neglect our own intelligence. And so by being generative, that's sort of the interpersonal work and skilling that allows us to be very yes and with one another. So an example would be if you look at the World Economic Forum just released their newest list of what they think the skills are that are required for this next year. They do it every year. And the human interaction skills have just been increasing year over year. And when you think of what's left when the current generative AI and large language models and image models get integrated into work streams, what's really left is humans solving problems together. And so I call that intelligence being generative. It's about the questions we ask one another versus all of the knowledge in the world, which today is on the internet. So that's generative. And then um, embodied is really the intelligence of our bodies. And in that, I include everything from the gut biome to our feelings and emotions. You know, we have 122 facial expressions. We only control eight. We are constantly broadcasting to one another. We are constantly sensing one another. And so really taking that embodied intelligence. Also, many people think we only have five senses. We actually have 51 with the broadest definition. I think each of those represents a potential superpower. Were we able to really fine tune it? And so I think our future intelligence is really going to be about getting varied embodied and then also emotional. We have this myth in our society that it's better to be non-emotional, but experiments that have been done, when you take the emotion out of something, people lose the ability to make decisions. We are emotional creatures. It's just whether or not we have emotional fluency, whether or not we're skilled at being emotional in a way that allows us to have more sensibility and sensitivity as to what's going on. And so I think we're going to get very emotional, but we need to be emotionally skilled. And then the last part is just really the sensory part. I've really been fascinated lately about studies where technology is showing what's happening beyond our current range of senses. So it's sort of like the bulk of the sounds in nature are actually happening on the ultrasonic and the supersonic layer. And we can't hear it clearly, but computer hearing essentially can hear it. So it might be the difference in sound between worker bees and a queen bee at a hive. They sound fundamentally different. And many creatures in nature can hear these sounds that we just don't hear at all. Honing our senses and expanding our senses is another way that we'll capture additional intelligence. And very often people trust only things that are proven, right, or researched, et cetera, et cetera. What are these things that we're talking about now, the 51 senses, et cetera, is based on that, right? You know, humans are funny things. And we do require science sometimes to tell us what we already know or what someone amongst us already knew. 
And so a little while ago, I was at a conference that it basically brought together indigenous leaders and tech people for a conversation. And I've done more than my fair share of meditating. And I've been in really odd places like Kathmandu and the jungles of Myanmar, meditating with masters. So I've also like read a bunch of Buddhist theology and some other things and different sources. And what's really interesting is that when you read these accounts and then you think about what computer vision and computer hearing is starting to show us, it's basically like through meditation or altered states of all kinds, maybe some of them through psychedelics, some of them through meditation, some of them through deep awareness of nature. I think a lot of the ancient, they were getting at this wider range of senses. And so where we are now is that science is basically starting to prove to us what we already know. And I'm excited about that. It's fascinating that we don't like trust our kind of inner knowing somehow throughout life very often. I guess it's because we are part of a system that doesn't really uh, upload that. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is important about science and technology is that, you know, in the ancient world, only a few people could do these things. But really, it's the inheritance of humanity for all of us to be able to have these abilities. And the way that happens is through science and technology. That's how we are able to sense and see it. That's how we're able to make a commonplace. Like the thing about technology is that it takes what's scarce and makes it abundant. If I had to choose between a world where only a few people could experience nature on its deepest levels and a world where anyone who chooses to can, I would take the second one. How exactly in a practical manner can or is already tech helping us to make these transformative experiences of well-being available to all? Where is that happening right now? Or can you give some examples? Yeah, the way that that breaks down is mental health, social health, and emotional health. So the advent of mental health and technology would be everything from telepresence or telemedicine, because if you look at like the World Economic Forum and, and also the United Nations has categorized, for example, depression and depression as the leading disease burden in the world. And then also, if you look at their estimates of, of where it's going today, we don't actually have enough. If you took every psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist, shaman, meditation teacher, coach in the world, it still is not enough to meet the current disease burden that's happening right now. So you don't even have to believe in the estimate. And so that's where technology really comes into play. So a very practical example would be, I live in rural Kansas. I can work with someone who lives in a dense area like San Francisco or New York. So that's, that's one example just about access. Then other examples would be, and this is fascinating and it's happening because of exponential technology, really starting to understand like what are the biomarkers of depression? What are the subcategories of things that might be driving it? So I'm obsessed with the biome right now. And there's a whole new category called metabolic psychiatry, which is really about how the combination of things that you consume affects psychological state. Or just even something really simple as being able to wear a glucose monitor and have proof that hangry is a real thing when people get hungry and their mood shifts. Like food is mood. So there's things that provide access. There's things that provide insight. 
And then the next category is things that are going into the genetic and sort of like cellular level of what might be driving issues and opportunities in mental health. So that's just mental health. And then for, you know, social health, the same sort of thing is starting to happen in social health about teaching and training people in emotional fluency. There's a couple of founders that I'm supporting who have developed a technology that allows you to use computer vision, computer hearing, and natural language processing to see when a group uh, synchronizes. And so like, that's amazing because anything that you can measure, you can map. And if you can measure and map it, then you can develop something to influence it. And you, so if you can measure it and you can map it, then you can hack it, which in a technology sense is a way to make something reliable, accessible, affordable, and available to everyone. I invested in a company called Gritwell, and basically what they're doing is they are mapping root cause for medical issues. Right now, another thing that's happening is that there is, besides for the surge in chronic illness, there's also a surge in autoimmune diseases. There's a surge in hormonal issues. And one of the challenges of medicine in the past is that it's very silo. It's a field of specialists, which they need to be. But the human body is not a silo. The human body is an ecosystem. You know, uh, human society is an ecosystem. The planet is an ecosystem. And so what's beautiful about this company is they're mapping the connections for a root cause so that if someone presents with early stage autoimmune, they can identify several different factors to touch. I was thinking also the future of work also connected to this kind of technology. How will it look like, do you think? Yeah, so it's pretty clear that's happening is that AI is taking over a great deal of tasks. So I always track the percentage of tasks that people estimate that AI can do. And so this time last year, the consensus estimates, you know, and everyone has a big range, but the consensus estimates were around 42 to 50% of current tasks. With ChatGPT and all of the apps that are being built on top of it, those estimates are now everywhere from 50 to 80% of current tasks. So what's really left, the tasks that, that are not being taken over, are humans solving problems together, humans connecting, humans creating things together. That's really what's left. And so the future of work is really going to be about being good at that, emotional fluency, emotional skilling, the ability to lead teams, coach teams, be a leader from any role on a team. Those are going to become table stakes to be highly compensated. One of the other things that's going to happen is what I call taste. Taste is going to be really important because generative AI and AI in general is causing what I call the great samification. Everything's going to start to look the same. And so I would say by this time last year, we're sitting in, you know, we're sitting in June of 23. By June of 24, almost everything you see online, I believe will be in whole or in part generated by AI. So what that looks like is there's going to be fewer spelling mistakes on websites. Websites are going to be more attractive. If you have an ugly website with spelling mistakes, you just don't care because it's really going to be too easy for that. 
But it also will happen is that things will sort of trend towards a look, kind of like just try and launch an ugly tech product today. But if you think back to what tech looked like before the iPhone, it was filled with ugly products. But now it's like everything has a certain attractiveness to it and a certain look to it, even from different brands, because the floor has risen. And so what's going to happen, too, with the future of work is that you have to be able to have a unique taste, which means valuing your imperfections, finding out what your absolute unique contribution is, your unique point of view is, and also making sure that you cultivate taste. And taste, I would say, is going to be endangered in this new world because taste actually comes from experiencing things that you don't like and forming an opinion. It's the process of becoming an adult. And so the danger of recommendation engines, whether they're on Amazon showing you things like the thing that you just bought or things that other people like you like, is that it's really possible to end up in a place where you aren't experiencing new things and thus developing taste. So the future of work is that people are going to get paid for taste, their unique taste. A really good example of someone who does that today is Rick Rubin, who just put out The Creative Act. And there was this great interview with him with Anderson Cooper, where Anderson Cooper says, let me get this right. You don't play any instruments. And he's like, yeah, no. And they said, and you don't actually engineer or produce music. And he was like, yeah, no. And Anderson Cooper says, well, what did they pay you for? And he's like, they pay me for taste. And so what he's able to do is he's able to listen to a variety of tracks and say, that's the one. And he's right, often. He also is able to help creatives get through creative blocks. He's able to coach them into going back to their true original voice. And so that's why he gets paid an incredible amount of money. And so it's a really great example of what professionals in corporations are going to have to do. You're going to have to have the taste that comes from a wide variety of experience. Because by the way, Rick Rubin listens to a lot of music. And then you're going to have to have the ability to take creatives, which is what we're all going to have to be, because the non-creative stuff is actually going to be done very well by AI and coach creatives into places past blocks and into places that they never thought they could go. And that's what the future of work looks like. That's going to require totally different or very different uh, leadership than we normally have today uh, in companies. And this is happening fast. And the leadership is, I don't think, even close to these kind of insights, right? So what do we do with that, you think, uh, gap? I mean, for example, all the leaders and people who are leading in companies today who might listen now, What's your advice to them, uh, given this description of future work? Well, the, the number one thing I suggest to people is to address something you and I chatted about a little bit a moment ago, is they have to address their MDIs, which are mommy-daddy issues. And, you know, it's really funny. It's like most of the commentary on work, like work-life balance, that type of thing, has put as the issue work bleeding into personal. Like that's the issue as most people see it. I think it's exactly the opposite, which is personal bleeding into work. So you have a person who like the, the person who takes credit for everyone else's work. If you follow that guy home or girl home to their childhood home, you'll find most likely a household where the only way to get love was to perform. You know, you had to earn love. 
that's really what's going on. And it shows up 40 years later by taking credit for other people's work. If you have the person who can't give feedback, you follow them home and you'll find a childhood most likely where everyone was walking on eggshells around someone and saying what you really think. So it's like it's like the biggest problem is not that work follows us home, it's that home follows us to work and it's unaddressed. And so teams are going to have to be able to move incredibly fast. Um, people are going to have to relate to their ego in such a way that they can reinvent themselves every couple of months, move on to new projects every couple of months. Like the, the speed that things are moving at, it actually doesn't get slower. It just gets faster. And so like the first four months of the year from the advent or the rise of awareness of generative AI to Silicon Valley Bank and like all of this instability, this actually is going to be every month. And it's just going to happen more and more and more. And so people are going to have to be really, really flexible, which means they're going to have to be able to relate to their fear. They're going to have to be able to seek out support. They're going to have to be able to reinvent themselves. And they're going to have to be able to join closely with the people that they work with to solve problems together. So number one, to answer your question is, make that therapy appointment. Your job depends on it. But for example, in Italy, where I am very much, this thing about going to the psychotherapist and so on is, is not very common at all. It's more like, you know, some kind of a collective group or group of friends or group of some professionals working together and so, and so on that, that become that kind of um, group of people that you would go to rather. So I'm just thinking if this um, future of work sounds like a, a lonely thing, something that you kind of need to reinvent yourself or upgrade yourself or learn new things every month, every, you know, to kind of keep up with it, it sounds very stressful and very kind of somehow forced as well. And does it have to be that way? All of this is going to be very collective. For example, in the U.S., there's this myth of the great man or the great woman. No one accomplishes anything of significance alone. Nobody. It's really beautiful and practical for people to do this as a group. And fundamentally, it's just really asking the question of oneself and one's friends, what matters to us? You know, it's essentially the examined life, the examined existence. And that doesn't require a therapist. It just requires connection. The goal really is to be able to connect to yourself and to be able to connect to others. One of the tricks of it is that often one leads to the other. So if you can deeply connect with yourself or begin to deeply connect with yourself, then that opens the door for a deeper connection to others. And then sometimes people come in the other way. They deeply connect to a group. And then someone in that group starts asking the questions of like, what matters to us? What do we really care about now? And then that leads to the sort of personal questions where someone can say like, what do I want now? And so you know, I absolutely think that it's a team sport and it's becoming more and more of a team sport. Like life is a team sport and work is going to be even more of a team sport for people to really thrive. So very much the ability to empathize, to kind of exchange meaning, to connect, to build deep relationships and, and work collaboratively. I'm just thinking in a lot of work environments that I've experienced over the past couple of years, all of these things are quite difficult to find. So it's a huge change uh, that is then going to be needed, right? Yeah, it's a big change. But I would say that humans are pretty good at sensing when the currency shifts. And I'll give you an example. There's some athletics that I really like. 
And so sometimes I go to camps that are just dedicated to those athletics. And in those camps, the people who have the most skill are sort of like the objects of desire in all the ways. And it's unrelated to how they look. It's unrelated to their education. It's unrelated to, you know, how much money they may or may not have. It's because there's currency in those environments that's related to, you know, learning how to do this particular thing. And so humans have an intuition. And what you'll see is like someone, you know, within a week or two of someone joining one of these athletic camps, their sense of currency shifts. Like you can see the, the social hierarchy shift very quickly. And so what I think is going to happen is that people are going to be watching what's happening and they're going to start to see, oh, here's how we together accomplish this for you know the success of our company or the success of our community. And so I think people will start to shift as the other options start to decrease. There is a little bit of an issue that we have to get out of, which is at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, when people were going into factories, there became a terminology. And Henry Ford actually was the one who said this early. It was sort of like man as machine. This is who we are. And then that just sort of transitioned into man as computer as we started to move into that. One of the reasons why people are so scared by what's happening right now is because the actual machines are here. And so we have to change our definition of who we are. And so we're actually coming full circle to a great deal of ancient wisdom, whether it's, I mean, a variety of questions like, who are we collectively? What are we about? Like, what is humanity about? What do we want this world to look like? And to navigate what is going to be a a period of uncertain times, uh, we have to get a new definition, human as what? And the words that we use, you know, are going to have a big impact on how successful we are at the transition. But I have to tell you, I have never been more optimistic. The old way of doing things, we can't actually do it that way anymore. And, you know, we're sort of being forced. So for the first time in history, we have politics, economics, technology, and culture pushing towards humans having to redefine themselves in a more human and humane way. So I have faith in us. I I really believe in us. I think that a human being who is not scared is loving and kind and willing to go out of their way for others. It happens all the time. It just doesn't hit the headline. And we do that all the time. And so I think that we're moving to a place where we start to realize that that's the norm because also there's no other place to go. Beautiful. Thank you for saying all that, Nicole, really. And uh, I would love to see these kind of good stuff, as you say, that are happening on a daily basis, that these kind of humanity aspect, the best part of humanity is is reaching headlines as well. So this is truly, truly important. It brings me actually to the question to you, like, what is the future that you wish to see? How does it look like? You know, how does it feel like there? Who's there? I realized a little while ago that a big part of, of who I am came from watching Star Trek as a child. And I grew up in Houston, Texas. I'm African-American. I grew up in a neighborhood where there weren't many people like that. And I was trying to figure out, like, who am I and how do I fit in this world? And so I would watch Star Trek. And at that time, it was the next generation. But I also watched the, the previous ones. And what really struck me was that it 
presented a future where humanity had decided that for the most part, we were on the same page. And if you think back, we had cleaned up our home world. We had figured out how to ensure that, you know, everyone's basic needs were met. It was a meritocracy. And also it was very diverse. One of the things many people don't know is Nichelle Nichols, who was a Lieutenant Uhura, the role wasn't actually written for an African-American person, but she got the role. And the first year of the first season of Star Trek wasn't actually very successful. It didn't get great reviews. And she got a lot of hate mail because she was a peer at a time when that was not what was happening because it was at the beginning of the civil rights movement or at the height of it. So, and she loved Broadway. And so she was going to quit. And someone told her, they said, oh, there's this event and your biggest fan's going to be there. Will you meet with him? And so she was like, yeah, sure. I'll meet my biggest fan, whoever that might be. And so it turns out her biggest fan was Martin Luther King. And so he tells her, oh my God, I, you know, I love Star Trek. <laughs> and she says, well, I appreciate it, but um, I'm going to quit. You know, I'm, I'm leaving this at the end of the season. And he says to her, oh, you can't because that represents what we're working for. And um, so she stayed. And so because she stayed, the writers of the show always included someone who was African-American in the cast. And so, you know, if she hadn't done that because they hadn't written it that way, then they might have made another choice. And so she created that spot. And then because she was there, then on The Next Generation, Jordy was there. And that I, as a little Black girl in Houston, Texas, could see that there was a future that was a meritocracy. There was a future where humanity was on the same page. There was a future where our business was exploration and curiosity and helping people and creatures all over the universe. And that there was a role for science and technology in making that happen. And so that really influenced me. I don't have pigtails right now, <laughs> but I still do in my heart. And so the future that I want is I want for humanity to know that we're on the same page. I want for us to decide that we have the resourcefulness to do what we need to do around climate, to do what we need to do around income inequality, and to really embrace our curiosity and our exploration. A lot of times when people talk about the future of work, historically, every time there's been a transformative technology, it has created more jobs, like more has happened and there have been more opportunities. I think it's one of the reasons why we're all going to become creatives in our own way because of what's happening. And so my vision for the future is that people can have support enabled by technology, but also deeply including other people to have mental, emotional, and social health that they need in order to discover what it is that they most would like to create and contribute. Nicola, I'm curious to know a little bit more about you. Like what transformational points maybe in your life have influenced you the most? I was in video games for a very long time. I headed operations for Blizzard Entertainment for China. It was sort of like my last really big game job. And I was in China. I'd been in China for six years and I was about to move to Hong Kong to do one last project for the company before moving back to the U.S. And I had a month off in that transition. And so I used to be someone who collected experiences. I would say it was still very egocentric. I just had picked something that 
sounded cooler. You know, I didn't collect cars, I collected experiences, but it was coming from an identical place, to be very honest. And so I decided that I wanted to experience getting scuba certified, that I wanted to experience going to Bhutan, and that I wanted to go on a silent meditation retreat because I hadn't done that before. And so I did it with that level of acquisitiveness, with that level of ego. And instead, what happened when I went on this meditation retreat is I actually had the first taste of an awakening. And so what that looked like was on the back end of the retreat, which is very uncomfortable on the first end, but the back end of the retreat, I felt absolute pure joy, pure bliss, as if I connected into something. And the biggest thing is that I felt really connected. I actually felt the interconnectedness between all life. It's called the web of life. So I felt the web of life. I actually felt it in my body and I felt pure joy, pure bliss from it. And so I left there thinking, I want everyone to experience this. Like if we weren't afraid and we could all feel our connections to one another, then we would take care of each other, you know, and we would take care of our planet and it would just happen naturally. Also, what happened in that experience was that there's a very specific thing called rumination. And that's just basically your inner chatter and all the different thoughts, you know, the 60,000 thoughts that you have a day that you can hear as they're happening. And so I also, for about four months, I had no rumination. And so it turns out it's like we think thinking has a sound. It doesn't actually have a sound. So you can build a spreadsheet. You can do all sorts of things without actually hearing yourself think. And so I had like four months where I had no rumination. And what happened with that was that because so much of my inner chatter had been about what's wrong with me, why am I not enough, and how my not being enough was going to lead to me dying poor, broken, alone <laughs> with nine cats, <laughs> you know, like, um, I stopped being afraid. I just wasn't afraid because I didn't have myself to scare me. So I had no rumination. And so I became really happy. So I, was, I wasn't afraid. And the natural state, and this actually ties towards Buddhist philosophy. In Buddhist philosophy, it's like there's a, the mind without attachment is naturally happy. Like we are naturally happy and we don't have to strive for it. You know, we don't have to try to create it. We just actually are uh, when we're not attached. I was happy and I was fearless. And because I'd been on the back end of such a large game, I had seen player data of connections and families and friendships. You know, over 70% of people who play games play games together. No one's playing solo games just because you can only see one person when you walk past your kid's room. It doesn't mean they're playing by themselves. They're playing with all of their friends. And so I had this belief in technology and with it, I combined all of that to start transformative tech. And I was one of the first people to talk about mental health and tech and social health and tech and using digital transformation to create human transformation and thinking about how to do that and inviting founders and investors and clinicians and scientists together to do that. So that was the major thing. The major point of transformation was feeling and believing for just a moment that I actually, in fact, was not alone in this world and wanting that for everyone else, for other people to know 
that they are not alone and they never have been. Fantastic, Nicole. Thanks so much, so much for for sharing that. That's a true, true blessing to have such an experience. Uh, we can have this kind of suspicion that that's the case, uh, it's, and so on. But until you've experienced it on your own, maybe it's difficult for many people to kind of hundred percent take that in. Yeah. Tell me about yours. I've heard amazing things about you, and I can tell from the questions that you've asked that you also have had these types of experiences in the sense of deeply emotional, deeply connected with the people in your life. What were your transformative moments? Well, there were a couple of, of course, connected to, you know, life and death situations as well. That's where it feels like you are like having some kind of out-of-body experiences in the sense that I had amazing sensitivity and I could pick up on things that I've never normally pick up on, these kind of things that I was experiencing a lot. And then But mainly it is somehow like trusting some kind of inner knowing without, I can't understand why I know or why I chose certain things or why I chose to trust uh, in certain moments and so on. But this happens on a regular basis that I just have a very strong feeling of of knowing uh, when to do that or not. And and I've uh, before I kind of connected my mind to it and tried to rationalize around why I think that. And now I don't even go there. I just trust it and go. And it works perfectly. So the more I trust it, it feels like it's a muscle that is developing even more. This kind of sensitivity of knowing what feels right, what is right not only for me, but what is kind of, you know, good for everybody involved somehow, that kind of feeling. So it's very much on a, on a some kind of an unconscious basis, but I, I've just decided to just go along and just uh, trust that feeling uh, all the time, wherever it takes me. <laughs> I love that. And to your question before, when we were talking about it, it feeling like a lonely proposition because you said two things. One, you said there's a knowing that you trust and you've seen over time when you've trusted, you've seen that it's had good outcomes for yourself and all of the people involved. So in that, you have your self-awareness where, you know, there's this thing, this question, this knowing that you have inside yourself, but there's a part of your mind that is also paying attention to the weak. And you've noticed that, you know, when you pay attention to the I, it also is beneficial to the we as well. And so that's, you know, I, I might not have communicated it very well at the beginning, but that's the connection between the I and the we that, you know, is also going to become essential going forward. So it's the way of showing up that you already do is where the currency will shift. In the world of business and um both you and I are involved in, in many different companies all the time. So what do you think is the most important thing for the companies to focus on right now, given what we've discussed? It's funny. I was talking to someone the other day, and basically it's like there's these lists of like why companies fail, especially startups. And the list include things like not finding product market fit and, you know, a bunch of other things like that. I think everything really is a people problem. I think all problems are people problems on some level. One big people problem is people not listening to themselves, to others, to the market, to customers. Or one of the biggest causes of companies failing is, you know, it's called a founder risk. Um, and it's the relationships between the founders. Can the people come together and withstand their fear? I think being in companies is an act of spiritual transformation. It can be if you let it. Can you withstand your fear? Can you work with your ego enough to be able to form a team? And so, you know, what companies have to really do right now 
well, one, like cash is king right now in the market. So like be very thoughtful about spends. It's kind of the conversation that we're having with all of our portfolio companies. Um, but it's really that taking care of themselves and taking care of one another is the way that they have the endurance and the flexibility to make it through this initial instability and then to develop the muscle and the cognitive athleticism to be able to shape themselves to thrive over the next five to 10 years. I'm thinking about if anybody who's listening thinks that, okay, but we are talking about so many kind of people, pure people related things. And yeah, it's important, but still there is a job to be done kind of focus. So what do we say to them? A team that is 10% more connected will be more effective than a team that is not. And so even just showing up on Monday morning and taking the time and the willingness to connect to your team, like that makes the tasks easier. Because, you know, they say it's like um, basically culture eats strategy for breakfast, <laughs> you know, and the culture is a collection of people and how they show up with each other every day. You know, and how one shows up with other people has everything to do with how you show up with yourself. So the Monday message is the same and it starts with you. Like it always starts with you. And if you're in an environment where that is not what's happening, then it might be worthwhile to find a, a company where they understand what the shift is and they value you for that. So what do you think the world needs most at this time? Belonging. The world needs belonging most. A lot of people, they think that the problems that we're facing are related to tech or they're related to beliefs, especially in the United States, which is very polarized, but it's really belonging. People feel that they don't belong or that the world around them is a place that they don't belong. So the way that tech people communicate technology to people who aren't immersed in tech is in a way that makes those people wonder, how do I belong in this world that's coming? Like, for example, people who work in fossil fuels, the way that people communicate to them about it. So like, I'm just thinking like the coal workers in Virginia and places like that. Everything they see in the headlines is like your history, your, the old way of doing things as opposed to, you know, the world needs energy and you're light bringers. Let's find ways to transition you and your children to another way to bring light, you know? So it's like we craft these visions of the future where people can't see themselves in it. They can't see that they belong to it. You know, a lot of the polarity in the U.S. is that both sides of the extreme sees in the other person's vision, a world that they don't belong in. So very conservative people look at very liberal people and they say, the world that you want is not one I belong in. Or very liberal people look at very conservative and they say, I don't belong to your world. You know, uh, non-tech people and tech people. Non-tech people think, I don't belong in the world that you're building. Tech people, you don't belong in the world that I'm building. And so it's that belonging is the thing that we need most. And so what we don't have is the shared vision or shared commonality. We have so much more in common than we have that's difference. And we just focus on these differences. And then we communicate to each other in ways where people can't see their future in the worlds that we describe wanting to create. And so I think that's what we need the most is to really foster 
belongingness and connectedness. And then I think most of the problems take care. Well, I won't say take care of themselves, but we are actually able to take care of them. We have enough food on the planet. We just, you know, don't have the conviction around how we spread it and use it. And I think many of our problems are the same. And so what the world needs most is belonging and people being thoughtful about inviting people in. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And I so agree. Thank you, Nicole, for sharing everything. Uh, it's been truly uh, so valuable and so important uh, to have this dialogue with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to seeing you again soon. So thank you for being on the show. To find out more, you'll find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Thanks for listening. And um, to make it easy for you to find and listening to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. Please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. I'm Vesna Luca and you've been listening to Corporate Unplugged. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.